You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2008. Today's message is titled, Integrating Faith and Work? In recent years, many Christians have stated that the workplace will be the venue for the next move of God. A byproduct of this focus is a concept known as integrating faith and work, which implies that work can exist independent of faith. The concept of integrating faith and work is not explicitly found in the Bible. Hence, we don't have a clear biblical definition. Furthermore, as far as we know, no prominent theologian has offered even a biblically inferred definition. So the question is, what does this phrase mean? Listen now as Dr. Chester explains to us the concept of integrating faith and work. Uh, A couple of years ago, I was asked to speak at a Christian university, and the professor that introduced me uh, talked about how at this school, uh, we want to integrate faith and work. And that immediately got me thinking, what does that mean? Integrate faith and work. And so the more I thought about it, the more I didn't like it. Okay, And those of you that know me were probably won't be surprised at that. Because that's a very common thing. And if, if I've learned anything about what's common, what's generally common is generally wrong. So, now that's not totally true, but a lot of times that's true. And as I reflected on this, I think I understand what they were saying. And the way I got to this is I had a, a lunch appointment with the dean of the business school, same university, and I started asking them questions. I said, uh, uh, tell me, you know, what's, what's the worldview here? Oh, we embrace a biblical worldview here. I said, really? Yeah. Um, well, tell me, uh, tell me about your curriculum in your business school. And she said, um, this was a lady dean, she said, um, well, you know, we use all the, the typical textbooks that you would find at any other, you know, business school. I said, really? I said, uh, but these are largely secular? Yeah, they're secular books. I said, well, how is it that you're bringing a big biblical worldview then to this, this business training? Oh, we have a devotion before each, each class. I said, so that sanctifies it? Does that make it right? And you could tell it was like she had never thought about that before. It was like a new idea. And so I, I began to see what they meant by integrating faith and work. And really, what it meant was we are going to be benevolent to God. We're going to invite God into our business, although he doesn't really belong there. This is the secular world here, and he really doesn't have any business here, but we want to embrace God, so God, come in and be part of our business. But we're going to continue to operate our businesses you know, by the secular principles that we have in the past. So that's what a lot of people mean by that. And, and so one of the things that I try to do is blow that up. Okay? In my book, uh, I, I present a model, and the very foundation of the model is biblical worldview. That's the foundation to me for everything. If you're running a business, you're running a church. By the way, you know, y'all, y'all ever spend any time looking at churches, how they're run? I mean, some of them are pretty nasty because they're not run biblically. Okay. How about running families? You need a biblical worldview. How about your own personal life? How about, running, how about governing ourselves? You know the terms uh, liberal? You know what that really is? That's a term of rebellion. It's a term of rebellion. We, 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 we carry around the term liberal as a merit badge, like, well, I'm liberal. I'm not hung up with conservative thinking or fundamentalist thinking. But liberal is basically saying, I am in rebellion against God's principles. That's really what it's saying. Secular is the same way. Secular is separating from God's principles. And our, our candidates for president, if you've been following the, 
the campaign are very busy uh, trying to separate themselves from their churches unless they need the church votes. If they need church votes, they go, they will speak on Sundays and they try to rally the troops. But at the same time, they're telling the, the Christian leaders, we don't want your input into our policies. We're going to make our policies based on our thoughts. It's going to be separation of church and state relative to policies, but relative to, to getting votes, then, well, we're going to come into the churches to get the votes. So you see the problem there? You know, this is, just, this is the way the secular world works. And we Christians, hey, we just, we just think that's okay. We don't raise the flag and say, wait a minute, you guys are in rebellion against God. We don't like that. I've got a good friend of mine that says one of the ways that you know that you're under God's judgment is when there are no good options. Now, that's pretty profound, isn't it? Okay? Now, you look at the presidential candidates we've got coming up. Do we have any good options? I'm very concerned. Um, I did a seminar on the Biblical Worldview of Investing back the first of the year. It was a day and a half seminar. Had financial people coming over from all the country coming in to talk about a Biblical Worldview of Investing. Uh, in December, you think that might be a good topic? Biblical Worldview of Investing? Would you think that would be a good thing for us to look at? Well, in December, I went out on Google. <laughs> and I put biblical worldview of investing in Google and I click search. What do you think happened? What do you think happened then? Huh? Did you get anything? The very first thing that came up was the marketing piece on my website for that event. <laughs> uh, that's pretty good marketing. <laughs> and I have done nothing to optimize with Google. Nothing. What's it, which says there's, there's almost nobody out there. And then I went down to the second, third listings. And they didn't really have biblical worldview of investing. They had biblical worldview of something else, or they had investing in something else. I was the only one out there on the web using that term. I'm thinking, Lord, what is this message? Now, a month later, I did find a financial company had gone out there and grabbed hold of that term. And they, had, they, had, they were now number one, and I was number two. And I don't, know, I don't know how that works out. But the point is, there's nobody in the conversation. We're not talking about how to invest biblically. Do you know every day you invest? You invest time, talent, treasure every day. Every day. You make decisions every day based on whatever your worldview is of investing. And most of us have never sat down and thought through what is a biblical worldview of investing. Uh, recently, I, I took a list of the 100 best companies to work for. Okay, You've seen those lists? They go out and do these surveys. And basically the way you get on the list is employees have to nominate your company. And then this, um, this, this company that does the survey, they send out uh, questionnaires to all your employees. Or I think they do a sample. I don't know if they send every employee. And then they gather that data together. They score them, and they come up with this list. And so I thought, well, this might be a good place to find some companies to invest in because a biblical worldview of investing includes valuing people. God values people. So I want, to, I want to find companies that value people. So I'm looking down this list. I'm thinking, well, let's see. I'm, I'm not going to screen this. So I said, I'll tell you what. I'm, first screening I'm going to use is I'm going to see which ones of these are gay-friendly. Now, why would that be important? Okay, Romans 1 tells me why that's important. Because Romans 1 tells me that homosexuality is a judgment on people who have rejected God. Read it. That's what it says. 
Okay? Now, we don't like that. That doesn't fit our culture. It's not politically correct today, but that's what Paul says. So maybe if Paul says it, maybe it's true. So I'm thinking, all right, I don't want to support any organization. I don't want to invest in the organization that is supporting the gay agenda because they're supporting people that are in rebellion against God. I don't want to support that. Do you want to support that? No, I don't want to support that. So I'm going down this list. I'm trying to find some company that does not pay same-sex benefits. I thought that would be a marker, right? Well, guess what? I went down 35 companies, all but one was paying same-sex benefits. I found a little regional bank up in the north, northwest that was not. I'm saying, Lord, what is the picture here? What is going on here? We're absolutely throwing out biblical well, the biblical principles that have made this country what it is. We're throwing it out left and right. Did I share with you guys about the Chinese research? Y'all didn't I share that with you? The Chinese spent 20 years researching the United States. They asked the question, why is the United States the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world? It's a pretty good question. Would you agree that we are the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world? Is there any question about that? Well, the Chinese are trying to figure out, how is it that the United States is having this power and prosperity? What's going on here? And the researchers said, we looked at everything. We looked at their political system. We looked at their educational system, their social systems, their economic systems, everything. And they said, we came to a very clear conclusion. There was absolutely no doubt in our mind. It was, there was absolutely no question. We were unanimous in our opinion that the reason that the United States is the most powerful and prosperous nation in the world is because of its Christian heritage. That's it. That's why it's enjoying what it's enjoying. Now, think about that. That's what's facilitated blessing. And you know, you read the Bible, you say, well, my goodness, that's what the Bible says. What did, the Bible, what, what did God say to the Israelites? Remember what he said to them? If you will obey me and worship me only, then I'm going to bless you economically. I'm going to bless you politically. I'm going to give you the power to overcome your enemies. But if you don't do that, you're going to be cursed economically, you're going to be cursed politically, and your enemies are going to overtake you. Isn't that what he said? Isn't that what happened? I mean, the whole Old Testament, that's the, one of the great stories. Look, guys, you don't obey God, you will get judged. And this is what it looks like. There's an economic judgment, there's political judgment. Social judgment, all those things come upon you. Now, what we are doing in this country in our enlightened age is we're totally ignoring that. Totally ignoring the principles of Scripture, and we act like we don't, we're not subject to the rules of God. We can go make up our own rules, and we are disconnecting from the very thing that has brought us the blessing we enjoy. Now, that's a scary thought for me. I have, frankly, I'll tell you where I am personally. I'm in the midst of some very serious prayer asking God, where do I invest? And it's not just for me in my lifetime. I'm thinking about my children and my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. What do I do now to position them 100 years from now to enjoy the blessing of God and to advance the kingdom of God? Have you thought about that? Has anybody got a 100-year plan? No, we don't think that way, do we? We think like Wall Street. I heard a guy on Wall Street on CNBC one time talk about some investment deal, and then he was saying, you know, the, the, the um, journalist was asking him a question about, well, you know, this isn't going to last very long. He said, oh, by the time it blows up, I'll be gone. That's the mentality. 
It's, 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 long, it's just about me. And that's, that was Hezekiah's attitude too. Do you know? Remember Hezekiah? You know, he, you know when, he, when God granted him an extension in his life, but he's going to judge the people. Oh, and Hezekiah I'm not worried about it. I'll be dead by then. See, and that, that is very worldly thinking. That is not biblical thinking. Biblical thinking is sowing seeds today that may not germinate and may not, may, may not yield a, a crop for 20, 30, 50, 100 years. You know who's got a vision of this a whole lot better than we do? Does anybody know? The Muslims. The Muslims do, but even somebody else is better. The Japanese. The Japanese. Now, do you know where the Jap... You know, have you noticed the Japanese went from total... Absolute annihilation in 1945 to a pretty robust economy today and the number one car maker in the world. Tell me, how did that happen? Does anybody know? You should know. Well, they always make, make decisions with the long term in mind. They do, that's one, that's one of the principles they use. But where do these principles come from? One of the things they did was invited Deming in, Deming, right. and, and they listened to him because they, they, they didn't understand how. America prospered so much, so they studied Deming, and we rejected Deming. Edwards Deming went over there with biblical worldview. He gave them a biblical worldview. Now, he didn't tell them that's what he was giving them, but he was saying, hey, guys, this is the way you want to build great companies? Use these principles here. You start looking down Deming's principles, Deming's, Deming lines up with Scripture incredibly. Deming was a spiritual man. He was, I, don't, I can't tell from reading him you know, if his paradigm of Christianity lines up well with what we understand it to be today. But he was very, very, he looked at the Bible extensively. He saw principles in Scripture. He extracted those principles and brought those to bear in his, his uh, practice. Deming almost single-handedly rescued Japan. And he did it with a biblical worldview. You see, we, we don't get it. I was listening to John Edwards here a few months ago, and I wrote this in my newsletter, how he was talking about how, you know, America is a secular nation. That was, he declared it. America is a secular nation. Okay? And then he said, I am not going to let my church leaders impact my political decisions when I'm president. I said, I'm good. I don't want you president. You know, he totally has missed what has made this country great. If you go back, and those of you who have read or studied David Barton's work, how many of you all are familiar with David Barton? David's done a great job. David has uncovered the reality of what was going on in the founding fathers' minds. Their idea of separation of church and state is not what we think it was. Their idea was basically to protect the church from the state. And that came because of the abuses they saw in Great Britain. Our idea today is to protect the state from the church. We flipped it around. So that's not what our founding fathers had in mind. In fact, the founding fathers, when they had a problem... You know, and they needed wisdom on it. What did they do? They went to the pastor and said, tell me what the word of God says about this. And the pastors would go to work trying to understand what the word of God said about a particular issue, come back and say, this is what we think scripture has to say. They used that then to shape the policies of this country, which is why we are what we are today. Does that surprise you? I mean, that's the power of biblical world. Biblical worldview over 200 years made America what it is today. And now we are rapidly, we're rapidly tearing it down, and I don't know how long it's going to take for it to collapse. Uh, I'm not a political theorist, but I have read political theorists. In fact, I was with, with a political theorist this week, and I said, look, this is what I've read. 
I'm not, that's not my expertise, but what I've read is that the end of a democracy is a dictatorship. He said, yes, that's what happens. And I said, what I've read is that what happens in a democracy is the people begin to vote more and more entitlement programs. I said, yep, that's what happens. And eventually what happens is we get to the point as we borrow money to, to fund those entitlement programs, we get to the point we can't service the debt anymore. And then we have a financial crisis. He says, yes, that's what happens. And then, then the only solution is a white knight comes in and rescues us, and that's the benevolent dictator that comes in that usually winds up being a despotic dictator. And I said, is that what happened in Germany in 1920 and 30? He said, yes, that's how, exactly how Hitler got to power, was the failure of a democracy. Is that, I mean, let's just grab you guys. I mean, do you see the, the gravity of where we are? I don't know why I'm talking about this. This is supposed to be about business. Isn't it? <laughs> why am I talking about this? Okay, is this, is this relevant to anybody? Is anybody tracking with this? Okay. I mean, it, to me, it's very relevant to business because you're not going to have a business, you know, if we have an economy that collapses. Well, how would you like to have been a businessman in 1940 in Germany? By 1945, whatever you had, it was gone. It was blown to smithereens. Whatever assets you had, they were under rubble. And now you, you've got a country that's nothing. Now, do you think that might be the judgment of God because of the sins of the leaders of the country? See, we, we can't disconnect our business from our politics. Our decisions that are being made in Washington and down in Austin are going to impact us in our business worlds today. So we've got to think about that. Okay, so that, I think that was all about integrating faith and business. My, my, my thesis is we don't integrate faith in business. We build our businesses out of our faith. And I think it's reality for all of us. You can look at anybody and whatever you see going on there, it's, it's evidence of the worldview that's within them. Okay, I think you had also, you talked about common mistakes for starting a business. That's what you said. By the way, I've got a whole half-day seminar on this. If you're interested, it's on my website. Um, common mistakes that I see in starting a business is number one, the wrong reason. Okay? If you're starting a business to make money, it's the wrong reason. The only reason to start a business is because God has called you to do it. It's the only reason to do it. If we believe God's in charge and he's in control, the question is, is God calling you to start the business? Now, that is so foreign to our thinking that you might hear that and just say, I can't go there. No, you can go there. You can go there if you decide you want a biblical worldview. Because God is very intentional and purposeful about what he's doing. The question is, are we going to line up with him or not? And guess who's going to win in the end? Okay? And we can be in rebellion. We can be liberal and secular and all that stuff if you want. But guess what? You're just cruising for judgment. Okay? The only thing that's going to endure is obedience to God. So the question is, what is God's will? And I, I think I shared this with you last time, James 4, uh, which, which tells us really what business is all about. And this is a, this is a text that um, really makes people scratch their heads. I'll just read it to you real quickly. James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Now what's that? Isn't that a business plan? Hey, we're going to go to Fort Worth and we're going to open up a branch over there and we're going to do this and this and this and we're going to make money. By the way, have you ever seen a, seen a business plan that didn't say they were going to make money? <laughs> Yeah, you know, all business plans say they're going to make money. Okay. So, hey, <clears throat> we're ready. We're going to go do it. 
Now, look what James says. Whereas, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Good point. For what is life? Gets down to the essence. What is life? He says, it is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Where were you 100 years ago? Where are you going to be in 100 years? Barring the return of Christ, this world will still be here 100 years from now, and all of us will be gone. We're a vapor. Just appears for a flash. So he's, he's giving you perspective here. So he's giving you some biblical perspective here before he's going to give you the truth he wants you to, wants you to grab a hold of. He says this in verse 15. Instead, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He just told me, if I develop a strategic plan, I need to be sure I have submitted that to the will of God. So if you're going to start a business, you better have a plan and that plan needs to be submitted to the will of God. Lord, is this your will that I start XYZ Company? Is this what you want me to do? Is this what you call me to do? So the number one problem in starting business is people don't ask. <clears throat> they don't ask the Lord. They presume. Which I think that's one of the reasons. You know what the failure rates are, don't you? Stats on that, something like you know, 80% of them fail. <laughs> I had a guy uh, call me here. He was a real estate broker for years with a... Pretty, some pretty major companies, and he wanted to start his own brokerage company. And he said, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to get your teaching on starting a business. I said, fine, it's available on the website. And um, so he downloaded it. He listened to about the first 30 minutes, and he called me up and says, this is depressing. Yes. I said, why is it depressing? He said, because if this is right, 80, I got an 80% probability of failure. I said, well, that's statistically the, the case. He says, what do I do about that? I said, well, it's real simple. Seek the Lord. Ask the Lord if you're supposed to do this. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. You see, and this guy, is, he's a very faithful church member. He's been, I've known him for years. He loves the Lord. He's got home groups and teaches the Bible and all that. But he'd never thought about asking the Lord about business. Because we don't, we don't connect God in business. So, number one is, is it the will of God that you start the business? That's number one. Number two is, you know, are you the person that's been assigned to lead that business? Okay. Number three, it's not good for man to be alone. Y'all heard that? Okay. Which means that if you try to do it by yourself, your business will reflect your strengths and your weaknesses, and what's going to kill you is your weaknesses. So what do you do about that? The solution to, to man was a woman. Right? Wasn't that the solution? Okay. And in the New Testament, we find that another solution is the community. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we need to learn to dwell in community and value all these wonderful gifts that God puts into people. So if you want to have a successful business, then you need to bring in all the various gifts and talents that need to be brought to bear to that business for it to be successful. There's three basic functions of any business. It doesn't matter what, where it is, what it is, what it does. It doesn't matter. You've got to do three things, and you've got to do these three things well. If you don't do these well, you will have problems. You've got to get work. You've got to do work. And you've got to keep score. Those are the three things you have to do. So when you, most likely, in and of yourself, you can't do all three of those well. So you better find a community of people that you can be equally yoked with to do those three things well. Okay, which brings me to your question about the, the, you're, you're yoked with a partner that does not share your worldview. Now, I don't wish to alarm you, but that is a major problem. 
Okay, because you're unequally yoked. There's a principle of the universe, it's, and that is equal yoking. If you're going to plow a field, and you put two animals together in the plow to plow the field, if the animals are not equally yoked in every respect, okay, what's going to happen? Is the animals are going to be pulling at different speeds. So the, uh, the animal, usually the, the animal that's strongest and going the fastest, is compensating for the weaker one which means you are taking usable energy that could be used for, to produce work and now managing conflict because you've got this conflict going on in the yoke. Come on, you got to get going. Come on, you've got to make you go. So you, all this tension, this time, energy, and effort goes into managing this conflict. That's a, a, a picture of relationally what's happening in a company when you're unequally yoked. The way you're unequally no, yoked is real simple. You've got conflict. You've got conflict, you're unequally yoked. Now, let me make, make this point. You can have healthy conflict. Iron sharpening iron can be healthy. But you look at the worldview. When, you have, when your worldview is different, you're probably going to have very unhealthy conflict. Uh, in my book, I talk extensively about this. I use the C4 principle to gauge are you equally yoked or not? Are, are you called? Are you equally called? If you feel called of God there and he's, and he's basically called by mammon, you're going to be equal, unequally yoked. You understand mammon's the spirit of money. Okay, so that's going to be the wrong motive. Most people in business are, are called by mammon, which is why most companies don't last more than 40 years. The average company lasts 40 years. Did you know that? That's the stats. Average company. So that's barely a, a generation, which is why we have almost you know, no long-term companies. By the way, the oldest company in the world recently collapsed. Did you know that? It was over 800 years old. It was a Japanese temple builder. They built Buddhist temples. 830 some odd years. Why in the world did they last 800 some odd years? What's the deal here? Where are you, God? I'm serious. I mean, come on. There's a lot of godly men building companies that don't last that long. Don't even come close to that. Why is that? Well, you look at how they built that company, they practiced biblical principles until the last president. In fact, each president was a family member or closely related to the family, and each one took the DNA that was, that company was built on and faithfully followed it. They valued people. They put the right people in the right places. They, stuck, they stayed to their focus. They didn't deviate from what they did well, and they did it with excellence. They built idols with excellence. That's what they did. You can use biblical principles and do bad things. Okay. And we have it happening all the time. But in the end, they got a president that deviated from biblical principles, and that's when it collapsed. It took them 800 years to collapse, but it's an interesting picture to see that. Biblical principles work, guys. Well, the, the solution for any of us, you know, and I'm standing at the front of the line, is when I find I am out of line with God, I'm convicted of sin, the solution's the same. You repent. Repenting is changing the way you think. Okay? So now I'm going to start thinking differently. I'm going to line my thinking up with God, but now I've still got the consequences of this mess I made. And so now I've got to begin to seek Lord, the Lord for a divine strategy for how to get out of that. And God does that. You know, God speaks to us individually. He will give us those strategies. You know, remember when David was attacked by the Philistines? Remember that story? Here comes the Philistines, and like, yep, here they come. What does David do when, when the Philistines show up? Got on his knees. 
Lord, what do I do? The Lord responded, well, David, we're going to do this one a little differently. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your army, and I want you to hide them back here in these trees. Okay? And you wait. Now, you can't see anything back there. So the signal's going to be the leaves are going to rustle. When the leaves rustle, come out and attack them, and I'm going to give you the victory. Now, how would you respond to that? Uh, can I at least have a, have a spy out there? How about a pair of binoculars so I can kind of see? I mean, I, what's this hiding in the trees and waiting for the, the leaves to rustle? What kind of strategy is that? You see, we don't want to accept God's strategies. We've got to learn to ask. And when he gives us that goofy strategy and we say, oh, this will never work, we've got to go do it. Obey, obediently do it. And then trust that God will, will find a way. You know, that's, that's, to me, that's one of the great secrets of business is learning to pray. Learning to take everything to the Lord and say, Lord, how do I solve this problem? It's called the ask-seek-knock process. And you have, we have a good God. When you ask him for a fish, he doesn't give you a snake. He gives you a fish. You ask him for bread, he gives you a bread. So you can trust that as you ask the Lord for wisdom and discernment, that he will give you the wisdom and discernment you need. Ask him for the strategy, he'll give you the strategy. So do you have faith to trust him for that? That's the question. See, that's, that's where we've got to grow up because we're not used to talking about faith in business, are we? Okay, Lord, I've got to have, I mean, I've got to make payroll Friday. I need faith for that. Okay? How we, Lord, how am I going to do this? We need to be on our knees asking the Lord for wisdom and discernment on how to do that and have our advisors in the conversation <laughs> with us speaking truth. The truth may be, um, you know, you probably shouldn't be in business. You know, you know, one of the challenging things of being a consultant is sometimes I have to tell a client that. I had to do that last year. Uh, I worked with a client for about two years. At the end of that two years, I was pretty convinced that, that he shouldn't be in business. And the way I knew that was his definition of success. Okay, his definition of success was, I have to be a small business owner. So I said, that's why you're in business? To be, because that's the only way you can be successful? I said, well, how did Jesus define success? And of course, he had no clue. You know, Jesus defines success, John 17, 4. And if you don't know this, you need to know this definition, because this is the only definition of success. He said, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That is the only valid definition of success. Bill Gates is not a success unless he's done the will of God. Warren Buffett is not a success unless he's done the will of God. Now that is a brain lock for us because we've denominated success in terms of dollars. But the reality is success only comes by obedience to God. So as I began to work with this client and I began to share with him this definition of success, he was convicted, which was a good place to be. Get convicted. I've got the wrong, I've got the wrong definition of success. I've got the wrong, I'm, I'm in this business for the wrong reason, so now what do we do? So now we begin to pray and seek the Lord. And for about six months, he, his wife, and myself were praying and seeking the Lord, asking the Lord, what, what are we supposed to do? And in the end, we came up with a, a plan that we thought might work. And he began to implement that plan, and at every front, you know, it was a roadblock. Every time, boom, over and over again. And finally, after three months, we sat down and talked and said, you know, I think the Lord is shutting this down. 
Because it doesn't matter what, how we go out at this, there's no favor. And if you have no favor of God, that's probably a good indicator that you're off the path. It's kind of like Balaam's donkey kind of wandering off. You know, you keep bumping your, your foot against the wall, it, gets, it hurts. And so when he finally made the decision, you know, we need to just bankrupt the company. I mean, it was very painful. It was very hard. I mean, his wife, you know, really had a hard time with it, and he had a hard time with it. But now, a year later, you know where they are? There's much more health and life in them. There's clarity about what God's calling them to do. There's more direction and focus in their life. The family's doing better. They're doing better. They're financially doing better. Everything's better because they chose to follow the Lord and do the hard thing, which none of us wants to do, but it was the right thing for them. Okay, we talked a little bit about unequal yoking. I would commend to you uh, the book of my chapter about that. I think it's chapter 5 that deals with that. Um, the, the only way you're going to reach your full potential, <coughs> this is true of anybody, is to be in equally yoked relationships. Those are hard relationships to find, but they are available. Starting with your marriage, you know, in your business, in your churches. If you're unequally yoked in your churches, it's going to be a lot of angst too. So finding godly people that you can associate with and build with. Now, a lot of people object and say, wait a minute, you know, what about you know, your witness? Guess what? You don't have to worry about your witness. You, you are a witness. Everybody's watching you anyway. They're seeing everything you do. In fact, let me suggest this. When you get into, let me read you a text. Acts 19. This, this, I think this really is a great picture of how to, to sell and market. Acts 19, um, Paul shows up at, um, at Ephesus. And he finds 12 disciples of Apollos. Apollos is a, an African Jew who embraced Christ but didn't understand the gospel very well. And Priscilla and Aquila had already talked talk, talk to him a little bit about this, but he had not been able to convey the fullness of this to his disciples, and he felt called to go to Corinth. So he left, and Paul comes into town. He finds these 12 disciples, and he asks them the question, you know, what, you know tell me, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So he instructs them in, the Holy, in, the, in what the Holy Spirit's all about. They get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We have all that scene going on. And then you have Paul going out to, as he normally did, to the Jewish synagogues and sharing the gospel, proclaiming Jesus Christ, and proving or demonstrating from the Old Testament that Christ was the Messiah. That was just common practice. The Jews did what they normally did, which was? They, they, well, they wanted to. They rejected it. They didn't want it. Okay. In verse 9 it says, But some, when some, uh, some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, which is another way to say biblical worldview, okay, before the multitude, he departed them, that is Paul, and withdrew the disciples. These are the 12 men. And reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. Okay? Now this went on for two years. For two years Paul meets with these 12 men in the school of Tyrannus and teaches them about the kingdom of God. Two years. What is the fruit of that? What's going to happen when you do that? Listen to what it says. And so, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. You see, evangelism happens through discipleship. And this is a major thing that our churches don't get. Evangelism happens because people get infected with Christ. Now, this is true in business. Evangelism is selling. 
You want to sell your product and service? Then you go, you go infect the people you've been called to serve with excellence. You infect them with Christ. And you do it, whatever it is, you're pouring concrete or you're doing accounting work, it doesn't matter. You go infect them with the excellence of your work, then they become, they become the evangelist for you. I mean, I know if you're into advertising, this is a kick in the pants. But to me, this is a biblical approach of how you get out there and you let the world will find you. You know, the world always gravitates to excellence. You know that. So if we were excellent, I think we'd find, wake up one day and find out we wouldn't need to do a whole lot of advertising because people are going to call us. Is that revelation to anybody? Okay, so... Uh, then there was a question about integrity. Somebody asked a question about integrity. Okay. Integrity, I think, is a very misunderstood value. The presupposition behind integrity is that there is a value system that you are true to. Do you know a lot of Muslims have integrity? Because they're true to their value system. Integrity does not in and of itself imply a biblical worldview. So you have to contextualize this. Integrity to a biblical worldview or integrity to a secular worldview or integrity to a, a, a Muslim worldview, whatever it is. You've got to ask, what are, you, what, are you going to be, what are you going to be true to is the question. So people talk about integrity and they, they, they think they're talking about honesty. That's what most of them think. You need to challenge them. That's not what it means. So integrity in the business world is being true to a biblical worldview and to biblical values in the marketplace. Somebody asked about transition planning. Is that you? It's a great, great question. The question is, what are you called to do? That's the question. Do you have any clue as to what you're called to do? I have a lot of clues and pieces of the puzzle, but I haven't been able to put them together yet. Okay. See, and one of the questions I would ask, do you, have, do you know what you have C4 to do? C4 is the biblical principle that you find that's used over and over again to qualify people to do work. For example, when, when God was hiring people to build the tabernacle, that was his project. He owned it. He hired a general contractor, and he said, okay, here's the, here's the way I want you to hire the workers. And he gave them the C4 principle. That's how he hired those workers. When, when Moses was told by his pagan father-in-law, you know, you shouldn't be sitting around, you know, solving all these disputes among the Israelites. The Israelites were very litigious, just like us. Had a lot of lawsuits. Okay? He said, you shouldn't be sitting around solving all these problems by yourself, you're going to wear yourself out. you have a nervous breakdown. And he told him, here's what you do. He says, you, you point you know, leaders of hundreds, fifties, tens, etc. And you delegate to them, you train them in God's ways and delegate them the responsibility. Well, how do you qualify? How do you hire those attorneys? Here you see four. Act six, we have the problem with the food distribution going on. You know, some of the Grecian women aren't getting their fair share of food in the early communal church. So the apostles say, okay, we need to get some men to manage food distribution. Fine, use C4 again. And of course, how about, how about important elders in churches? What's the principle? How do you qualify elders in churches? Now today, the way we do it is whether or not you have a lot of money. That's how we do it in America. But the Bible has a different way. Okay? C4. So that would be my, my encouragement to you. Uh, grab the book. I've got a seminar, Strategic Life Alignment, which is all about how to find what you have C4 to do. And as you get clarity on that, then you will have more insight as to where you need to go with your career. Are you guys aware of what's going on in Fiji? You all aware of what's happening there? 
2001, it was a coup. And um, I'm going to answer your question, but I've got to tell you, give you a little background here. 2001, it was a coup. And the police and the army didn't know who they were going to support. They were going to support the government of the coup. So they were in stalemate for about three months. So what the coup, coup leaders did is they basically took the, the government hostage. They took control of the government buildings, which effectively shut down the government. So for three months, the, the, the country was in just total anarchy. There was looting, fires. I mean, the economy went in the tank. The economy was already suffering. It really went in the tank. Tourism stopped. Uh, I mean, streams became polluted. Trees that were bearing fruit stopped bearing fruit. Fish that had been in the lagoon stopped showing up. Uh, crabs that had been there got real small. All kinds of things happened. Bad things. I mean, the economy went in the ditch. So at the end of three months, the, uh, the army and the police decided they were not going to support the coup. So it was a no-brainer. They, they got in and cleaned out the coup leaders real quick. They had, they had the tools to do it. So now what do you do? I mean, so they, they decided to set up an interim government. Well, the interim government was made up largely of Christians. Now, these Christians were not contaminated with the false doctrine of separation of church and state. They don't think like we think. So they sit down and start looking at, okay, here we have total social and economic calamity in this country and political calamity. What do we do? They looked at the Bible, and they realized that the country was reflecting the church. You ever thought about that? That our country is reflecting the church? I think that's reality. That's what's going on in this country today. So they go to the church leaders and said, guys, you're killing us. All due respect to you, you're killing us. And they're saying, what? says, you guys, you're pointing fingers at each other. You're criticizing each other. You're, you know, you're backbiting. You won't cooperate. You won't do anything. You just, everybody's got your own little fiefdom over there, ruling your own little world, and we're falling apart. The church leaders were convicted. They fell on their face in repentance and started praying. That's all they did. No marketing programs, no, no social programs. No economic stimulus. They just start praying. Transformed the economy. Overnight, fruit trees began to bear fruit again. Streams that were polluted were cleaned up. Fish came back. Tourists came back. You know, people that had formerly been enemies began to come together and rebuild. People that had diseases were getting healed. And the Fiji Water Company began to prosper. Do you know anything about the water business? The water business is basically a freight business. Water's heavy. I did some research for a client about 15 years ago, and we concluded that if you're in a water business, you're in the freight business. Most water companies, they serve an area fairly close to the source. If you've got a, a bottled water plant in East Texas, probably a 300-mile radius is probably where they're going to serve because there's so much money to carry it, you know, the rest of the, part, rest of the United States. Fiji is 12,000 miles away from here. It is halfway around the world, and the Fiji Water Company ships and sells products in the United States. Why? It's because of the favor of God. When the favor of God is on your business, then you will, you will begin to build that business with such excellence. And that's what the Fiji Water Company is. It's an excellent business, excellent company, excellent water source, and they're literally able to ship and market that product worldwide with zero marketing because excellence goes before them. You see, I think that's what you've got to begin to ask is, Lord, what is it that we're supposed to do with such excellence that people, don't, they wouldn't even consider anybody else? We're it. We're the player. 
What is that? I think that's what you're looking for.